This is Onuma Yasaki, Professor of International Law at the University of Tokyo. Today, I'm going to give lectures on international law. And the lectures I'm going to provide you with are on international law in the multipolar and multi-civilizational world of the 21st century. The objective of these lectures is rather simple, to argue that we must scrutinize the perspectives that we have so far taken for granted, which are West-centric, and deliberately adopt what I call a trans-civilizational perspective in order to appreciate the norms and realities of 21st century global society. To start my lectures, I invite you to enjoy a manga. Manga, as you know, is a vibrant cultural form in contemporary Japan. This manga, drawn by a leading manga artist, Yamashina Keisuke, appears on the front page of my textbook of international law. In a few years, you will be able to enjoy an English version of it. The guy holding a cat in his arm appears to be the Führer of Deutsch or an intellectual pirate. But in truth, he is a personification of East Asian civilization. Not very handsome looking, I'm afraid. Studying a globe, he asks, Hey, Prof, they talk about the Near East, Middle East, and Far East, don't they? The professor, who represents knowledge as power, which is the predominant view of the world, responds, Yes, what? The man says, We are in the Far East. Of course, says the prof. But why? From our perspective, Europe is in the Far West, and what they call the Middle East is in the Middle West. Well, you may be right, murmurs the prof. The lectures I'm going to share with you in this video relates to this utterance, you may be right. They deal with perspectives or cognitive frameworks on international law. I argue that it is crucially important for us, humanity as a whole, to change the existing cognitive framework of the world, for there is a huge gap between the prevalent West-centric cognitive framework and the emerging realities of the multipolar constellation of power in the 21st century. If we fail to accommodate our perspectives on international law and international society to emerging realities, we may face various types of conflicts and clashes. We are usually not aware of the cognitive frameworks through which we see the world. We recognize and assess various phenomena or ideas by unconsciously adopting some prevalent perspectives. In dealing with international law, we usually adopt an international perspective. We see the world in terms of the relations between nation-states. This perspective reflects existing power structures centered in Western Europe and North America. Hereafter, I shall refer to these power structures as West-centric. We take this perspective for granted, but it is a new perspective. It became prevalent with the globalization of the modern European state system. 
In pre-modern days, humans generally saw what we call international phenomena through interreligious or intercommunal perspectives. In the latter half of the 20th century, the predominance of this international perspective came to be questioned. By the end of the 20th century, the transnational perspective was widely accepted. This perspective centers on ideas and activities associated with non-state actors. It is an important perspective to supplement or to modify the state-centered international perspective. However, even this transnational perspective is insufficient to appreciate crucial problems in the 21st century. Why? Because it is basically a perspective of the West, not of humanity as a whole. Major agents of transnational activities are multinational enterprises and NGOs, such as Microsoft, Citibank, or Amnesty International. Although some NGOs seek to work for the people in the South, their overall West-centric features cannot be denied. Even a person with rich international and transnational perspectives cannot appreciate global issues if his or her perspective is limited to a certain civilization. You may understand English, French, and Spanish, and have a deep knowledge of Plato, Thomas Aquinas, and Kant. Yet, you may lack even an elementary knowledge of Sharia, Confucianism, or Buddhism without which you cannot understand global affairs in this century. In the 21st century, we already live and will continue to live in a world of multipolarity. China and India will likely become superpowers rivaling the United States and the EU. The economic power of Asia will likely supersede that of the US and the EU. People in the non-Western world already constitute more than 80% of humanity. International law, basically a West-centric construct, must accommodate itself to such a world. In order to address the beliefs, aspirations, frustrations, and resentments of this powerful majority of humanity, we need a perspective that can supplement and modify the existing fundamentally West-centric perspectives. The values and virtues humans pursue are not limited to national interests, capitalistic economic interests, or modernistic civil interests. The decisions taken in global society are not always defined by a state-centric international perspective or modernistic West-centric transnational perspective. A person's identity as a Muslim, Catholic, or a member of an indigenous people may be as important as his or her identity as a Korean, Paul, or Iranian. In order to appreciate various factors shaping the thoughts and behaviors of humanity, we need another perspective. The trans-civilizational perspective is such a perspective here, the term civilization comprises cultures, religions, and other ways of thinking and patterns of behavior. 
You could also say transcultural, because in my view, civilization and culture are not categorically different. The term civilization tends to refer to ways of thinking and patterns of behavior seen in a region comprising plural nations. My first lecture deals with the theoretical framework of this trans-civilizational perspective. First, I will touch on the historical relations between international law and civilizations. I will elucidate how diverse civilizational factors were preserved under international law and are being menaced now. By appreciating the relevant history, we can understand why civilizations became sites of conflicts toward the end of the 20th century. Second, I will elucidate the problem of general international law from a trans-civilizational perspective. General international law is, a, is supposed to bind all members of global society. Because of its primordial importance, the legitimacy, its legitimacy must be recognized by as many members as possible. However, general international law has been equated with customary international law. It is difficult for general international law to have this legitimacy as long as it is equated with customary international law. I will argue that we must reconceptualize general international law in order to satisfy the fundamental requirements of global legitimacy. The trans-civilizational perspective can help with such a reconceptualization. First, civilizational factors and perspectives in international law and international relations. Religious, cultural, and civilizational diversities and the non-intervention principle. The international perspective became predominant when the modern European state system became global. This system has been characterized by a Eurocentric civilizational perspective. Around the end of the 19th century, international lawyers in the Western powers defined international law as the law among civilized nations. Civilization here meant modern European civilization. A West-centric perspective was taken for granted. Yet, even when the European powers established global hegemony, they seldom required Afro-Asian people to change their own cultures and religions. They lacked effective means to change the ways of thinking and the patterns of behavior of massive populations in Asia and in Africa. The sovereign state system generally accepted cultural, religious, and civilizational diversities within national boundary under the non-intervention principle. Toward the end of the 20th century, however, the non-intervention principle deteriorated. States came to find it difficult to control transnational activities. Further, problems of human rights attracted the concern of many people, especially in the developed societies. These problems, once regarded as domestic matters, came to be characterized at as matters of international concern. Today, 
states can no longer claim that they can deal with these issues as they like. The formidable power of globalization penetrating national territories involved the destruction and criticism of various aspects of cultures and civilizations preserved in non-Western societies. Reactions from the latter inevitably assume the character of civilizational conflict. This is why the conflict between the West-centric globalizing forces and the non-Western world give the impression of a so-called clash of civilizations. Second, <clears throat> a trans-civilizational perspective from a substantive to a functional notion of civilization. The term trans-civilizational sounds new, but transboundary phenomena have long been interpreted from various civilizational perspectives. Civilizations cannot be lost in a few centuries of West-centric modernity. Confucian civilization has survived, although in the weaker form of social ethics or customs. Buddhist civilization has survived either actively as in Thailand or in a low-key fashion as in Japan. In vast regions of Asia and Africa, Islamic civilization has been active with great intra-civilizational diversity. Even when civilizational factors were not conspicuous in international relations, policymakers were aware of their importance. Their significance became even more apparent when cultural and religious differences came to the forefront around the turn of the century. Western powers' policies in the Gulf War, the post-September 11th campaigns against Al-Qaeda and the Iraq War are leading examples. In carrying out these campaigns, Western leaders sought to avoid giving the impression that their campaigns were against Muslims in general. Yet, their actions were often perceived as Western or Judeo-Christian campaigns against Muslims. These examples demonstrate that certain civilizational perspectives have actually been adopted to interpret international affairs. Civilizations understood from these perspectives are generally perceived as monolithic, substantive, and mutually exclusive. Huntington's notion of civilization is a good example. We should also take into consideration that today's space or arena where ideas, claims, and arguments are exchanged and contested is overwhelmingly West-centric. There is little space for non-Western discourses. The voices of non-Western people are hardly heard. If heard, they are often distorted by Western media institutions which exert formidable influence on the global decision-making process. Unless people can liberate themselves from a monolithic and exclusive notion of civilization, the differences among civilizational perspectives will lead them to the pessimistic conclusion of a clash of civilizations. Unless the West-centric discursive space is changed 
and those critical of West-centric discourses can feel that their arguments are heard. It will be difficult to persuade those desperate people to refrain from resorting to violence. These are fundamental challenges for a legitimate global order in the 21st century. The trans-civilizational perspective is a theoretical tool to help to meet such challenges. The trans-civilizational perspective is a cognitive and evaluative perspective from which we recognize, interpret, assess, and seek to solve problems transcending national boundaries in full recognition of overlapping cultures and civilizations. A civilization is not a substantive entity that a person or society exclusively belongs to. A person usually senses, considers, and behaves according to plural civilizations simultaneously. Excluding this possibility of human behavior is theoretically wrong. Defining civilization as excluding the possibility of multi-layered belonging to several civilizations is practically inappropriate as well. People are generally proud of their own civilizations. If the contemporary life of a certain people is miserable, they tend to glorify the mystical civilization to which they believe they belong. They are inclined to disdain other civilizations. We should therefore define civilization as a functional notion that allows humans to think and behave according to plural civilizations simultaneously. This trans-civilizational perspective enables us to see, understand, and construe international problems not merely as issues of conflicting national interests, nor as issues to be understood merely from a West-centric transnational perspective of global civil society. It emphasizes the plural existence of long-lasting and diverse cultures, religions, and civilizations, and urges us to see those problems as connoting civilizational challenges and conflicts. The functional understanding of trans-civilizational affairs enables us to avoid a glorification of our civilization at the cost of their civilizations. Furthermore, cultures, religions, and civilizations influence each other. They transform themselves through these mutual influences. A rigid interpretation of a certain religion conflicting with today's critical values may change over time. In the field of human rights, we can see many examples of this problem. The trans-civilizational perspective, understood in functional terms, helps people to see such seemingly intractable problems with an awareness of the historical changeability of cultures, religions, and civilizations. Reconceptualization of general international law. First, theoretical flaw in the equation of general international law with customary international law. When conceiving of the problems of global legal order, it is important 
to correctly understand the status and function of general international law applicable to all members in global society. How and to what extent can norms of international law purport to have universal validity, transcending national, regional, political, cultural, religious, and civilizational diversities? This is a crucial problem in our century. The International Court of Justice has often relied on the notion of customary international law when it refers to legal norms with universal validity. International lawyers generally share this approach. They seek to demonstrate that a certain norm can be construed as customary international law and therefore as general international law. Their reasoning basically rests on the view that Article 38 of the International Court of Justice Statute indicates the sources of international law. Because this article embodies binding norms of international law, any legal norm must fall under one of the categories in this article. And because treaties are special law, the sources of general international law must be found either in customary law or in the general principle of law. The latter category is excluded for various reasons. Hence, general international law has been equated with customary international law. However, this reasoning is questionable in many respects. First, even insofar as the norms to be applied by the ICJ are concerned, Article 38 may not provide an exhaustive enumeration. It may provide only examples of applicable norms. If so, then there may be applicable norms other than those in this article. Second, it is questionable to assume that all forms or cognitive basis of international law are listed in Article 38. Article 38 merely stipulates norms to be applied by the ICJ. When norms of international law are actually referred to or used in various forums, they are basically assumed to be norms prescribing conducts of states. Norms of international law, like any other legal norms, are basically prescriptive norms of conduct. Even if adjudicative norms to be applied by the court provide a useful clue to identifying cognitive basis of law, they do not necessarily identify all forms of law. Third, the category of customary law is concerned with the cognitive or existential form of law. The category of general international law is concerned with the range of validity of law. There are different categories. Simply demonstrating that a certain norm is customary law does not guarantee its universal validity. There are norms of special customary law without universal validity. The universal validity of a norm must be demonstrated independently of its being a customary norm. Fourth, from the viewpoint of global legitimacy, there are other norm-creating mechanisms 
that are more legitimate than the process producing so-called customary international law. The failure to find cognitive basis of international law independently of Article 38 has helped prolong the prevalence of the theory of customary international law beyond its proper lifespan. Second, <clears throat> the legitimacy deficit of the traditional theory of so-called customary international law. In the traditional theory of customary international law, most customary norms were identified by leading international lawyers of Western powers. These lawyers sought to identify general state practice and opinio juris in order to demonstrate customary international law. However, it was impossible to identify these two elements for all, even a great majority of states. They thus identified the practices and opinions of a few Western powers, and then simply took these as signs of general practice and normative consciousness of international society as a whole. Norms characterized as customary through this method certainly enjoyed a high degree of effectiveness because they were formulated on the basis of the practice of the great powers. This effectiveness of the customary law has actually eclipsed its lack of universality. Notions of acquiescence and tacit consent have often been used to camouflage this lack of universality. However, there is no legislative process through which states could deny their consent. Acquiescence and tacit consent thus assume a highly fictitious character. This undermines the claim that customary laws meet the crucial requirement of global legitimacy. It is true that effectiveness is an important element of law, even if a certain normative idea is superficially accepted by all states, it cannot be a law if it lacks the possibility of being enforced. However, the element of effectiveness must be discussed separately from that of legitimacy. If the law's effectiveness conceals its lack of universality, then international law will demonstrate an ideological and discriminatory character, functioning as a tool of the Western powers rather than as a set of binding legitimate norms for all humanity. As I said at the beginning of this lecture, the study of international law has been overwhelmingly West-centric. The state practice and opinion juris of a far larger number of humanity, that is, those of non-Western nations, have not been seriously considered. Traditionally, this problem has not even been considered a problem. The fact that non-Western people make up some 80% of the human species has been ignored. First, they were not subjects of international law. Then, after the attainment of their independence, 
the continued preeminence of the mythical seal theory of customary international law has kept the problem invisible. Third, the comparatively greater legitimacy of multilateral treaties and UNGA resolutions at the cognitive basis of general international law. In the multipolar and multi-civilizational world of the 21st century, the norms of international law with universal validity must have the highest degree of legitimacy based on the acceptance by as as many members as possible of global society. Without such a level of legitimacy, the norms would face continuous resistance and thus lack effectiveness as law. Seen from this perspective, reliance on customary norms has serious deficiencies. Comparatively speaking, multilateral treaties UNGA resolutions and the declaration of major international conferences constitute far more legitimate cognitive basis of general international law than so-called customary international law. In fact, most international lawyers have already accepted this conclusion, albeit tacitly when they identify norms of general international law, they often resort to provisions of multilateral treaties with near-universal ratification by states or important UNGA resolutions adopted unanimously or by consensus. They do so without necessarily demonstrating that these are customary norms. For example, when they discuss the prohibition of the use of force, an important norm with universal validity, they always refer to Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. Likewise, when they discuss the principle of non-intervention, they always refer to the third principle of the Declaration on Friendly Relations of 1970. Only when they discuss the so-called sources of international law do they talk otherwise and give undue emphasis to the judiciary. Treaty provisions, UN General Assembly resolutions, and custom all constitute cognitive basis of international law. Although there is a presumption that treaty provisions produce legally binding norms, not all treaty provisions do so. We must specify legally binding norms from treaty provisions. Also, most treaty provisions provide a cognitive basis of law that binds state parties to those treaties. However, some provisions of a multilateral treaty are construed as universally binding norms, especially when an overwhelming majority of states are parties to the treaty. If almost all states behave with such normative consciousness, we could and we should construe these provisions as embodying norms of general international law. In such cases, it is not necessary to demonstrate the so-called customary nature of such norms because being a customary norm does not necessarily ground universal validity, as demonstrated earlier. 
In the case of UN General Assembly resolutions, it is true that they have only hortatory force per se. However, this is the case with some state practice and treaty provisions as well. They all constitute cognitive <coughs> basis of law, not law itself. A certain provisions of some important resolution can be a cognitive basis for identifying legal norms of general international law if it embodies the legal consciousness of an overwhelming majority of states transcending civilizational differences. Whether particular norms are applicable by the ICJ provides only a useful clue to, not a decisive test of, whether they are norms of international law. Even if norms are not applicable by the ICJ, they may still be legal norms performing a number of functions as international law. They prescribe behaviors of states and induce compliance with international law as norms of conduct. During the Cold War period, no one would have expected that the U.S. and the Soviet Union would resort to the ICJ when they had a conflict in interpreting nuclear arms control treaties. Yet, these treaties were perfectly regarded as international law and actually functioned as such. These non-adjudicative yet legal norms of conduct fulfill an important communica communicative function of law as a common language between states with diverse values and interests. They can explicitly embody common understandings of global society. They can legitimize state behaviors that are compatible with international law. These are all important functions of international law. I demonstrated these points in my article in the European Journal of International Law, published in 2003. Certain norms, if not applicable by the ICJ, can perfectly be perceived as international law and actually function as such. I now <coughs> talk about resolutions adopted by the UN General Assembly and major international conferences as cognitive basis of international law a little bit more in detail. A number of prominent international lawyers have argued for resorting to UN General Assembly resolutions as a means of identifying international legal norms. Although this argument has been criticized, such criticisms uh, can be overcome. For example, the argument that UNGA resolutions are not mentioned in Article 38 has already been addressed. It has also been asserted that a state's vote for an UNGA resolution does not imply its intention to be legally bound. Voting is a political act of a state, not a juridical one. Had the state known that the resolution would be binding, it may not have voted in the affirmative. This argument certainly sounds persuasive. However, the role of state practice in customary international law 
also blurs the distinction between the political and the legal. International lawyers regard statements by state agents, such as presidents or prime ministers, as well as nonverbal acts by executive organs, as expressions of state practice or opinio juris. Yet, most of these acts have political aspects as well as juridical aspects. If one argues that the act of the executive organ is constrained by law and therefore could be characterized as juridical, then the same argument should apply to votes in the UNGA or in international conferences. When representatives of states vote in international organizations or conferences, they act within the framework of their domestic laws. It makes no difference whether a concrete act of a state agent is performed in the international organization or elsewhere. We cannot be sure whether the state agent acts within the intention of creating law or with that of conveying hortatory force or with some other intention. It is only through an interpretation by international lawyers or courts that certain elements within the concrete act of state should be characterized as juridical. No act of a state agent is inherently purely political or purely juridical. Once this common feature of acts of state agents is recognized, then the comparative advantages of relying on UNGA resolutions as a cognitive basis of general international law become evident. They are more clearly formulated and more elaborate articulations of the normative consciousness of states than the acts of political organs of states traditionally used for identifying customary norms. Or most importantly, the UNGA process of adopting resolutions can satisfy the requirement of quasi-universal participation of states in the creation of general international law far more concretely and explicitly than can the traditional theory of customary law. I do not argue that all resolutions adopted by the UNGA re <coughs> constitute a cognitive basis of international law. Only a limited number of declarations should constitute such a basis those that can be construed by their wording and by voting patterns as expressing legal norms with universal validity. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights of 1948 and the Declaration on Friendly Relations of 1970 are two such examples. Even in the case of such leading resolutions, not all provisions can be a basis of general international law we must demonstrate that they have international, transnational, and transcivilizational legitimacy in order to construe them as norms with universal validity. For example, 
The Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, which was adopted by the overwhelming majority of states, but was persistently objected by develop developed countries, with a considerable number of abstaining states, does not satisfy such requirements. The same is true of resolutions adopted by politically important international conferences. As you see, the Vienna Declaration of 1993 is a good example. It was adopted in an important international conference by the great majority of states, transcending political, economic, social, cultural, and religious differences. Its international and trans-civilizational legitimacy is very high. It was also adopted in a setting where a great number of NGOs were watching and influencing the negotiations between state representatives. Thus, its transnational legitimacy is also high. In this way, we must seek to identify and construe norms of general international law through a norm-creating process whose legitimacy is, comparatively speaking, great enough to ground norms regulating the conduct of states with huge civilizational diversities. The theory I have presented to you here is, of course, not without flaws. But at least, if compared with the prevalent theory of so-called customary international law, which is so mysterious and fictitious, and which conceals its lack of universality behind the effectiveness of the power of a few Western states, it can attain greater legitimacy in global society.